So last week, we read the amazing story of Jesus feeding 5,000 plus, 5,000 men plus women and children with one little boy's lunch, five little pita loaves and a couple little sardines. He takes that, he turns it into a meal for thousands of people. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell this story, uh, and we're going to continue on from there today, and today we're going to read a story that Matthew, Mark, and John tell us. We're going to read Matthew's account, so if you have your Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 14 of your device, or it'll also be on the screen. And today we are going to dive in, pun fully intended, to this story. You'll see where I'm going with that. Matthew 14, immediately after the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And it starts out with that word, immediately. He made the disciples, notice that he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain to by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Those words that we read hundreds and hundreds of times in the Bible, Jesus says again, do not be afraid. So again, the story follows right after the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle of the multiplication of food and the incredible provision that Jesus works in the lives of those people because he feels compassion for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd, right? They are like sheep without a shepherd, so he shepherds them. Both Matthew and Mark tell this story by starting out with the word immediately, which is very common for Mark. If you read through the book of Mark, you'll see the word immediately all the time. Mark is just darting from one story to another. But Matthew doesn't usually. He kind of tells longer stories. And so for him to use the word immediately, there, there's something going on in this story where there's an urgency happening. And so we're, we're going to talk about that. Why is this an urgent moment? John gives us one little sentence in his version of this story that I think helps us understand what is with the urgency of this moment? Why does... Jesus immediately make the disciples get in the boat and, and go away. John 6, 15 says, right at the end of this story, or at the very beginning of the story, right after the feeding of the 5,000, perceiving that they, the crowds, were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus has this perception after he feeds all these people that they're going to come. I don't know how you force somebody to be king, but he has this perception like they're going to kidnap me and make me king. And so there's this urgency like I need to get out of this situation before the crowds start to go wild. He perceives this, but they aren't thinking of him as 
when we worship Jesus on Sunday mornings, we think of him as the king of the universe, as the king of our hearts, right? They want to make him a political king. They don't understand that that is not his calling. That is not his mission at this time. They don't understand that Jesus' mission is so much greater than being a political figure for one generation in one nation at one time. He's not there to free a generation of people from the Roman Empire. He's come to free all people for all time from sin and destruction. It is far greater than what they are picturing. And so before the crowds begin to riot and to force them into a political role, he sends his followers off in the boat and he goes to pray alone. And I think this is something that we as Christians need to understand today. Jesus is not the political savior that's going to come and save the United States from the issues that we face in the 21st century. And it's not that he's not big enough for that. It is that he is far greater than that. I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of politics today, but I just want to say this. He is not, he did not come the first time around to be a political savior or the president. He came to save people from sin and destruction. He came to make people right with God and make them righteous in the eyes of God. If Jesus had come the first time to set up a theocracy, a government ran by God, then he would have done that. But that wasn't his goal when he came. His goal was to save everyone that would come to follow him. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't want godly people in political offices. I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote in elections or seek to make our country a blessing to God. We should do all of those things as much as we can. But we also need to understand Jesus told us very clearly, if you've been with us through these gospel stories for the last couple months, he tells us very clearly there is persecution that will come to all those who follow Christ. And if you were with us a year or two ago, when we went through the book of Revelation, you would understand. The Bible tells us it's going to get worse and worse and worse at some point. We don't know if that's now or a thousand years from now. But we know at some point that persecution will ramp up. The word of God tells us that eventually the kingdoms of this world will fall. And then Jesus will come. And he will come as the rightful king of the earth. But this whole idea of like Jesus as president of the United States, it is not a biblical idea. So we need to let go because this is exactly what they were doing. They were like, we want to make Jesus king so that he can free us from the problems that we have with Rome. And Jesus says, it is so much bigger than that, guys. It is so much bigger. 2 Timothy tells us, and you may have heard this verse many times, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We already see this happening in our world. 
I think it'll get more and more that way. But we need to understand that in the middle of all of that, in the middle of elections, in the middle of being afraid of things that happen in this world, at no point is God not in control of what is happening. He is in control. He has never been surprised by any of these things. And he is not taking his hands off of his people. He is with us in the midst of all of it. I know I'm kind of going off on a very small part of the story, but with everything that's going in our world, I think it is so important for us to understand this. God's in control, but God did not come to just be the 21st century Savior. He came to save the world. Everybody who has lived in this world, he came to be their Messiah. I wonder if there was just a moment, and this is just my idea, but I wonder if there was a moment when Jesus makes this perception that they want to make him king, if he thinks for just a moment, that would be easier. He knows what's before him. He knows that the cross is coming. He knows he's going to die for the sins of all mankind. So I wonder if for just a moment he thinks, I could just become king and use my power and kind of take the easier path. But what's amazing is that even if he had had that moment of temptation, he never would have done that because he was so sure of his calling. He was so sure of what his mission was in the world that he never would have given in to the empty promises of the world, that this kingdom of the world could somehow be good enough. He knows why he has come, and he is sure of it. What is it in your life that you know at the core of your existence you are absolutely sure that God has put you here to do? For me, as I just begin to think about that, I I know at least two things that God has called me to do. I know in the core of my being that I am called to love my wife and my children, and I am called to pastor people and teach the Word of God. I don't know a whole lot more than that that I know for sure God has put me on this earth to do, but I know that. I am sure of those callings. What is it for you that you know in the core of your existence God put you here to do. And you need to take those things and you need to hold them. And not allow everything else, all of the other crowded things in our world, push those things out of place. Those things that you know God called you to do, hold them and continue on in them and follow God in those things. All right, let's jump back to the story, our main text. I want you to notice this as well. I pointed out, it says Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. This was not a recommendation. The original language is even stronger. It's it's like he compels them to get into the boat and to go. It was a directive from their master, and we're going to come back to this idea, but keep that in mind. The situation that they find themselves is a situation that Jesus specifically put them in. Jesus then goes up to the mountain to pray by himself. 
We talked about this a little bit last week. Jesus models this for us. He goes off to be alone, to just pray and to be with his Father. Or maybe he's just finally getting some rest after all the work that he has done. I felt compelled this week to go do this because Jesus did it. And so I just, Friday afternoon, I just drove up into the mountains, even though it was snowing, and maybe a dumb idea to just drive into the mountains. But I was like, I'm just going to do this. And it was just a couple hours, and I just went, and I took some pictures, and I prayed, and I just spent some time with Jesus. And it was so good for my soul to do that. I found myself driving around in the snow, which I weirdly love doing. It feels like I'm in Star Wars. So, like, and I just found myself just, like, one of those dumb, you ever catch yourself with a dumb grin on your face? You're like, I'm just so happy right now. Like, I know Josh does that a lot. <laughs> like, I just caught myself with this, like, dumb grin. Like, I was just, like, alone. I love quiet. I don't know if any of y'all are like me and you have kids at home, and the greatest thing in the world is just silence. Like, I, I have fell in love with the sound of silence. And I just was with Jesus. And Jesus does this. He goes away just to be alone and to pray and to be with the Lord. And I know I said this last week. I know that it's so hard for people. And my wife and I talked about it. And just like I said last week, I know all the moms are like, yeah, that'd be great. When does that happen? Right? We, we have to make sure that we get those times to just be alone with him. And so he does. He, he goes and he's just silent. But while he does that, the disciples are in this boat. John tells us they're three or four miles away from shore at this point. They're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and Mark tells us that they are making headway painfully. Right? They are rowing. They are trying. They're, there are waves crashing in all around them. The Sea of Galilee is known, even to this day, for having these big storms that can arise quickly. Because the Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level. Did you know that? 700 feet below sea level. The Dead Sea is 1,000 feet below sea level. I see some of the youth are like, I don't understand how that's possible. Let me tell you. They are at the bottom of what's called the Great Rift Valley. The tectonic plates in the earth created this valley inland that is actually over a 1,000 feet below where the Mediterranean Sea sits. And so they are way down in that. And so when the cool air comes off of the Mediterranean Sea and comes flying through these canyons, which are 2,000 feet above sea level, so there's a 3,000-foot difference, that wind starts ripping through and creating these massive storms that can seemingly come out of nowhere on the Sea of Galilee. But this storm must have really been something because half the people in this boat were professional fishermen. They have dealt with storms on the Sea of Galilee many times, and yet this storm leaves them fearful. So it's a large storm. They're struggling. They're afraid. And then it tells us about the time of the fourth watch of the night, which means 3 to 6 a.m., right? So they probably left at like 
dark, and they've been rowing, and so it might be up to eight hours that they've been out here rowing and making headway painfully, and waves are crashing, everything's going around them, and I, I think they might be starting to wonder if they're going to make it through this, because they're afraid, and I wonder if they have this moment where they start thinking, did we just go through all of that? Did we just go through following Jesus and watching him work and being sent out to preach and to heal and feeding the thousands of people? Did we just go through all of that just to die in the Sea of Galilee wondering where Jesus is? Have you ever had that moment? Did I just go through all of this just to die wondering where Jesus is? I think most people at some point in your life, you've had that thought, like, what is going on? I've gone through all of this pain, all of this struggle, all of this trauma, whatever it is, and now I feel like I'm just going to die in the pit wondering where Jesus is in the midst of it. Listen, don't miss this. And I know it's not an easy thing to hear, but don't miss this. Remember, they were exactly where Jesus told them to be. The trial that they found themselves in was a trial that Jesus made them go through. They're right in the middle of a storm, but they are also right in the middle of the will of God for their lives. If we begin to understand that, that sometimes the middle of the storm is exactly where we're supposed to be at that time, then we will begin to see our lives in a completely new way. The disciples were painfully making headway and they're moving forward. They were battling, they were struggling, and they were wondering where Jesus was in the midst of all of it, but they were exactly where he wanted them to be. And then, this is one of the best parts of the whole Bible, is when something's going on and then it says, but then, then they see a figure walking towards them on the water. We skip over this because we've read it a bunch of times, but just think for a second. You're out on a boat, and then you see somebody walking towards you on the water. No wonder they freak out. <clears throat> and they're like, it's a ghost. They're afraid. Jesus is walking on the water, not just on the water, but amongst the waves. Remember, it's not calm. He's not walking on the fresh glass that you all want to go skiing on. He's walking on the crashing waves. He's trampling over the waves. And they're looking at this, and by all rational, physical understanding of their world, that's impossible. And so, of course, they're freaking out. And I love this story because it's, it's a crazy story, but... At all of us at some point, I mean, maybe you're really boring and you've never done this, but has anybody not tried to walk on water at some point in your life? <laughs> like, I have tried so many times. I had a pool when I was a kid living in Southern California, and like every summer I would be like, here we go, and I would just like take that first step, be like, it's going to happen this time, I'm just going to walk right across this pool. Never worked. 
Sometimes I would try like strapping the little floaties onto my feet, which I thought, this is brilliant. This is going to work. What I didn't think is, no, this is going to make me flip upside down and my head's going to be underwater until I can get floaties off my feet and I almost died. Okay? But everybody at some point is like, I'm going to do this. There's something in us where like, I, I can walk on this water. Jesus does. He walks on the water. Because when you're the creator of water, when you're the creator of the physical laws of the universe, it's not really a problem for you. And so he goes and he walks on the water and he's just out for a nice early morning stroll. Somewhere three to six in the morning, he goes and walking on the water and Mark tells us this funny little bit of this story that nobody else does. It says Jesus meant to pass them by. Like he wasn't actually walking to them initially. He was just going to like, he's like, well, the shortest distance from where I am to where I want to go is across the Sea of Galilee. So he just goes out and he walks and apparently he gets a little too close to them because they freak out and start yelling and it's a ghost. And I love Jesus's reaction here because so often Jesus is so low key in a very high key situation. They're freaking out. They're yelling, it's a ghost. And he's like, take heart. It is I. Be not afraid. Don't you think it's funny how many times the Bible tells people, don't be afraid when they're in the midst of a situation that you like, you would 100% be afraid? In our understanding, right? When like these angels come to people who are like the, sol- the generals of God's army and they're like, don't be afraid. Like, you're terrifying course I'm afraid. And they're in a storm about to die, and he's like, it's fine, don't be afraid. It's just me walking on water. Don't be afraid. I love that God knows that we have this tendency to live fearfully. So hundreds of times in his word, he tells us to not live in fear. I also love how Jesus is so gracious in this because he was meaning to just walk past him. Uh, and he says, hey, don't be afraid. If it was me, I'm going to be honest, I would have been so tempted to mess with these guys. Like, walking, and they're like, it's a ghost. I would have been like, ooh. But he doesn't. He doesn't want to mess with them. He wants to reassure them. And he, so he says, don't be afraid. It is I. Now, only Matthew tells us the second part of this story, which is wild to me because it's like my favorite part of this story. If you've been hanging out with me any amount of time, you know I, I have an affection for Peter because Peter's the guy who's always doing something stupid, and I identify with that. Peter is the guy who's following Jesus, doing his best, but also ends up being called Satan at one point because, like, he's just saying stuff he shouldn't say and doing stuff he shouldn't do. And so I love Peter, and and this story is so Peter-like. If you have your Bible open still, we're going to read Matthew 14, verses 28 through 33. Peter answered him. Right, so Jesus is out there. You know, it's a ghost. No, it's just me. Peter answers him, Lord, if it is you... Command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. 
So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. It says that so nonchalantly. Peter out of the boat, walked to Jesus. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. As we get to know Peter in the gospel stories, like I said, this is such a Peter thing to do. And of course, he's the one, like I think I would be like, I want to walk on water too. Jesus can walk on water, like let's do this, this looks fun. Which, by the way, when, when he says, Lord, if it is you, command me, in the original language, it's, it's more Peter saying, Lord, since it's you, he's not questioning He's saying, since it's you, Lord, I can see that now. Command me to come to the water, out onto the water. And Jesus, again, super low-key, like it's not a big deal. Come. Come on. In that moment, I imagine the other disciples. We don't think about this. I imagine the other disciples sitting there being like, Peter, you're doing it again. You're being such a Peter. Right there sitting there, and they're wondering like, is he going to do it? Is he going to walk on water? And I imagine Thomas is in the back corner going, I doubt it. <laughs> See what I did there? That's a doubting Thomas joke. I'm going to tell you the truth. I am more proud of that joke than I've ever been of a joke I've made. <laughs> I giggled by myself in my office like, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I doubt it. Sorry. That one was for me. And Peter, was it that bad of a joke? (laughs) And Peter, for all the grief that we give Peter, for all the times in the Bible where he denies Jesus, or he's the one that questions Jesus, or he's the one that's a little too eager to start swinging a sword at somebody's head, for all the times that Peter is acting like Peter, listen, Peter's the only one that takes the step out of the boat. This is one of the reasons I love Peter. For all the times he messes up, he's also the one who says, okay, I'll step out. Right? We've talked about this before. What is faith? Faith is when you put your full weight, and I trust that this stool will hold me, and so I put my weight on it. How great would that have been if it just broke right then? Oh my gosh, that would have been awesome. But I put my faith in it, and Peter does this. He believes Jesus. When Jesus says, come, Peter puts his full weight, literally, on the water. And he takes this step that nobody else wanted to take. He puts his literal weight upon the water and puts his faith in Jesus. But then... As is so often the case, Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus. While he's focused on Jesus and trusting Jesus, everything's good, but then he sees the winds ripping and the waves crashing and everything that's going on around him, and he has this moment where he realizes that what's happening right now is impossible. 
in his frame of reference, in his worldview, what's happening is impossible. And I know, another dumb joke, I know this is silly, but you know what this reminds me of? Do you remember the Looney Tunes cartoons when Wiley E. Coyote would run off of a cliff and he would just be standing there in midair until he realized that he was standing over nothing and then he would fall? This is what Peter does. He's standing there and all of a sudden he like remembers, oh, I can't do this. And he begins to sink into the water. He takes his eyes off of Jesus. As long as he had been focused on the Lord, everything was good. But as soon as he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. And if there is a message for the church today in this scripture, it has got to be that. As long as Peter keeps his eyes on Jesus, he's good. He's doing things that that make no sense, no rational, observable sense in this world. But as soon as he begins to get wrapped up in everything that's going on around him, and the wind and the waves and everything else, he begins to sink. In that moment, Peter cries out. And what he says in that moment, to me, is one of the most honest and earnest prayers in the whole Bible. When we think about prayer, so often we have this misconception that they need to be eloquent, they need to be long, they need to be filled with King James language. His prayer in that moment is just, Lord, save me. It's probably a lot more intense. Lord, save me. Peter, in the middle of a crisis, he doesn't try to sound elegant, he doesn't take a moment to try to find the most theologically astute language He doesn't try to start quoting scripture. No, he realizes in that point, in that moment, I am in desperate need and the only thing that can save me is Jesus. And so he just cries out, Lord, save me. I cannot count for you how many times the only prayer that I can utter in my breath is, Lord, save me. And I bet a lot of you can say amen to that. Lord, save me. And I really believe that these are the prayers that God wants to hear from us. Not rehearsed, elegant prayers that sound good to the other people. Everyone's guilty of this. At some point, you've probably been standing in a circle of people praying, and you're not even listening to what the person's praying because you're rehearsing in your head, how am I going to pray so I don't sound stupid to other people, and I can use some like these and thous or whatever. Like, we're so worried about sounding right that we forget to just pray, to just talk to the Lord. Because Jesus, I believe, loves these prayers where we just cry out and say, Jesus, I know I'm lost without you. Lord, save me. A lot of times in my life, I haven't even been able to get that out. It's just help. I think that's the most honest prayer that humans can pray. Help. Help me, Jesus. It's also a prayer that's reminiscent of one of King David's prayers in the Psalms. I love this prayer from Psalm 69. David is overwhelmed by everything that's happening around him. He has enemies on every side of him that want to kill him. He literally feels like his life is at stake. 
And in that moment, when there's people all around him wishing to destroy him on every side, he cries out to God, and he says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. He's saying, I'm, I'm up to here in danger. Save me, O God. It's a prayer of a man who knows that he is in distress and his only hope is the Lord. In that moment, it says Jesus immediately reaches out his hand and takes hold of Peter and he says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And we have this moment again where Peter goes from the highs, I'll take the step out to the lows, I doubted again. Jesus isn't shocked by Peter's lack of faith. He knows Peter. He knows him on his deepest level. But I think he's just talking. He says, Peter, after everything you've seen, after the miracles that you've watched happen, after the the feeding of the 5,000 people, after you yourself have gone out and healed and taught and everything, how can you still doubt that you were taken care of? Jesus isn't shocked, but he wants to help Peter. And so many times, I think Jesus just wants his disciples to have their understanding of what's going on expanded. They still don't see how powerful he is and how this this is nothing to Jesus. We read this story and it's miraculous. Wow, you walked on water. Uh, Jesus is probably like, "This this is nothing. I made the water. You can trust me. When Jesus and Peter get back in the boat, the wind ceases, and there's this moment that's kind of funny to me because all the disciples watch this happen, and they've watched the feeding, and they've watched the miracles, and they've watched people be brought back from the dead. And, and then, once they see Jesus walk on water, then they say, truly, you are the Son of God. As if that's the moment but again, I think it's, it's growing. And then every time they see these miraculous things, their ideas of how much power and glory Jesus has is growing. And so they say, truly you are the Son of God. I think they're just trying to wrap their minds around what they're seeing. They're making their way through this trial, and they come out on the other side, realizing in a whole new way just how mighty to save Jesus really is. This trial that they went through, that they found themselves in the middle of, in the middle of the will of Jesus, creates a moment for them where they understand in a greater way the power and grace and mercy of God. And that's what I think we need to understand. And it's not an easy message to hear. But as we look at our lives and realize that there are times when we are struggling and yet we were right in the middle of the will of God, it's so that God could show how mighty and powerful he truly is. And that we can trust him in all of it. This moment is also incredibly significant because it is thus far in the book of Matthew, it is the most clear declaration of the deity of Christ in this letter. They are saying, truly you are the son of God. And in that culture, for you to say you're the son of God means you are equating yourself with God. 
you are God. They are looking at Jesus and saying, you're him. You're God. This is what eventually gets Jesus killed because there's people saying, he's God. And the religious people are like, that's heresy. Not if it's true. They're saying, you're him. It leaves no question as to what they believed about him. He wasn't just a great prophet. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a great guy. They're saying, we believe you're God in flesh. I want to close today with just one more thought that hit me really hard this week, really strongly, and I want to share it with you. And again, this is just a thought that I had, some musings on the story. As I think about Peter and how I feel like I identify a lot of times with Peter, I started to wonder, Peter asks Jesus if he can come out on the water with him. Why? Is it just because, like, he wants to be able to say he's walked on water? I don't think so. I think there's more to it than that. And I think it's this. I think Peter wants at his core to believe fully and completely in the power of Jesus. And Peter thinks in this moment, if I can just walk on water, I will never doubt ever again. How could I? If I can go and I can walk on water and be with Jesus in a situation that is beyond comprehension, then how would I ever struggle with any sort of doubt ever again? And yet he does. He does go walk out on the water. And it doesn't end exactly how he probably wanted it to, but he did it. He went out and he saw Jesus do something incomprehensible. And he got to be a part of it. He got to be right there with him. And yet, he still doubts. He's already witnessed miracle after miracle. He's already been a part of it. He has prayed for healing and seen people healed. He's been a part of all these things that God is doing. And yet, still, he's the one who at the end of Jesus' life denies even knowing him. This is an amazing thing to me because so often in my life, I'll do the same thing. I'll say, God, if I can just see you work in this mighty way, I will never doubt again. I remember one time, this might be controversial to some of you, hope it's not, Like, I remember one time praying, long story short, this, this girl told me one time that if I didn't have the gift of tongues, that if I couldn't speak in other languages, then I wasn't really saved, it, which is ridiculous, right? But I remember praying, God, if I ever did that, if I ever spoke in tongues, I would never be able to doubt again. How could I? And then God, one time, gave me the ability to do that. Like once or twice in my life. And guess what? It changed nothing. I started like questioning, well, did I just make that up? I still had this doubt that would go in. And, and 
Peter has this moment, if I could just do this, I will never doubt again, and yet he does. And so this moment where Jesus reaches out and saves him again, after he's already doubted so many times, after he's currently doubting, Jesus reaches out and he saves him. And then later in the story, when he denies even knowing Jesus, and Jesus again gives Peter another chance. He reaches out again. He says, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. I am so amazed at the graciousness of Jesus that no matter how many times Peter or me continue to struggle with our own doubts and questions, every single time he reaches out immediately and he saves us. Even when we let our eyes wander and we look to the wind rather than keeping our eyes dead ahead on Jesus, even then he invites us in for the first or second or third or millionth time to just cry out, save me, Lord. And he reaches his hand out again. He reaches out, he saves us, and he challenges us, just like he was challenging them, to grow in our understanding of how mighty and powerful he is. I don't want to end that on that negative note. It is amazing to me that every time I have struggled with doubts, every time I have taken my eyes off of Jesus, he still reaches out to me with all of my doubts and my sins in tow, and he saves me. And he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You've seen these amazing things. You've watched me heal people. You've watched me change your life. You've watched me change the world, and yet you still doubt, and yet he still loves us. I don't believe that this side of heaven, I'm ever going to get to a point where I just have this perfect faith, where I just believe 100% of the time and I never question. Peter sure didn't. Paul, throughout his letter, says, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I should do? Again and again, we see these imperfect people, and I'm so grateful for it because if I read the Bible and it was just full of perfect people, then it would be of no value to me. Because I would just say, I'm not that guy. But when I can read the story of Peter, and I can read the story of King David, and I can read the story of Paul, and all of them are these imperfect vessels that still God reaches out to and saves them, then I say, God, I need that Lord save me. Let's pray. Lord, for all of us, I think I can speak for everyone in this room that we are imperfect vessels. Lord, even when we have seen you do the miraculous, even when we have seen you change our lives and take us from lost to found and, and 
rebuild marriages and rebuild relationships and heal sicknesses. We have watched all these things, and yet still sometimes we have these moments where we're in the winds, in the storms, and we look around, we take our eyes off of you, and we begin to sink. And yet every time, immediately, when we just cry out, save me, O Lord, you reach out and you save us. You are so good. You are so worthy. That whole song, like, just, he is. You are, God. You are so worthy of our praise and our worship and our adoration. And I pray that everyone here this morning would know this to be true. Everybody would leave here depending more upon you than when they came in. And if anybody here doesn't know you, Lord, then I just pray that you would speak to their hearts, to the core of their existence, and tell them that there is no accident that they were here this morning to hear your word. And that you will also reach out to them and save them if they just cry out, save me, O Lord. Amen.